You're listening to audio from King's Cross Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information about King's Cross Church, visit us online at kingscrossraleigh.com. Today's sermon text comes from Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. In addition, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write to you again about this is no trouble for me, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for the dogs. Watch out for the evil workers. Watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, the ones who worship by the Spirit of God, boast in in Christ Jesus, and do not put confidence in the flesh. Although I have reason for confidence in the flesh, If anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, regarding the law, a Pharisee, regarding zeal, persecuting the church, regarding the righteousness that is in the law, blameless. But everything that was gained to me, I have considered to be a loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I can also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them dung, so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering, being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. My name is uh, Chad. I am one of the pastors with King's Cross here, and I'm really, really grateful, joyful that uh, to have everyone here with us this morning. As the as as we were singing, and even as you read in the passage that we're in today, it is difficult not for for Paul not to be showing us Christ. Uh, it is very clear what he's talking about and who he's talking about, and we're going to be digging into this passage in Philippians chapter three, verses one through eleven. We uh, typically teach, or we, I say typically, we're just starting out six weeks in, uh, but we teach through books of the Bible um, uh, primarily because we want to open up God's Word and hear what He has to say. Um, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there, chapter 3, verses 1 through 11, or your devices. If you don't have a Bible and you want one, we've got, uh, we have Bibles here we'd love to put in your hands as our gift to you. And this morning, what we're really going to be focusing on uh, clearly and I hope is evident, uh, is the all-surpassing riches of knowing Christ. Um, Would you join me in prayer that we would ask the Holy Spirit to guide our time in the Word? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time and the opportunity we get to come here together as your people, and that we'd be able to sit in this room, open up your Word together, uh, and to hear from you. God, show us clearly what we don't already see. Let your spirit teach us that we would be more like Christ. And Lord, give us the discernment and the confidence, the wisdom and the boldness to walk out of here obedient to the way you'd have us go. God, I thank you for all that you do and have done and ask for your your strength and your wisdom in our time together in your word. And we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Famed basketball coach John Wooden said that champions are brilliant at the basics. Mixed martial artist Crown Gracie says that everything in life goes back to the basics. And Waylon Jennings said maybe it's time we got back to the basics of love. No Waylon Jennings fans in here? Paul, this is not about uh, basketball. This is not about mixed martial arts. Uh, This is not about uh, your love life case you're wondering. But Paul is reminding the Philippians of the basics of their faith. He's carrying them back to the basics of the gospel. Uh, Professor of Divinity Frank Thielman actually says of this passage that Paul 
enters a discussion of some of the most profound themes of New Testament theology in this passage. Believers, we don't, uh, we don't, we always need reminders. We always need reminders, not because we need to be saved again, not because we need to come to salvation again, but because the gospel is what we are saved by. The gospel is our foundation that we stand on and it what changes us to be more like Christ. Unbelievers, if you're here with us today, this is a fantastic Sunday to hear fundamentally what is the foundation of the Christian faith and what sets us apart from every other world religion and standard of life. Because Paul wants the Philippians to see what is of first importance. Primarily, he wants them to understand that there is no privilege or achievement that can possibly compare to the all-surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus. When we stand at final judgment before God, all of our privileges, all of our achievements, they all fall short of God's standard. His standard for acquittal. Meaning we stand guilty before the throne for the life that we've led and we cannot work our way out of that guilt. There's actually three, three sections that Paul works through that I want us to be able to look at and see and hear from Paul as he encourages us and also challenges us to these ends. First, he repeats what is a critical admonition for the Philippians. Secondly, he boasts in some counterfeit confidence of his own. And finally, he turns our eyes to a pursuit of a Christ-centered ambition. So let's go then to uh, verses 1 through 3 and, uh, and read those along with me. Paul starts off in this way. He says, In addition, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write to you about it again, uh, to write to you again about this is no trouble for me and is a safeguard for you. So, so Paul is starting out. He says, rejoice in the Lord. He hits dead on. I, I could just tell you that from the beginning. This is the crux of the issue. He wants them to understand in the rest of this passage, you need to rejoice in the Lord. That's, that's fundamentally what he's getting at the rest of this time. We're going to talk about the rest of it, but this is what he wants the Philippians to be understanding. And he says, to write to you about this again is really no trouble for me, it's a, and it's a safeguard for you. It's no trouble for Paul, because he knows that we need reminding. You and I, we need reminding. Philippians, we need remi- they needed reminding. He loved the Philippians. This letter is, is, is filled with that affection. And so he wants those he loves to understand what is of most importance. Rejoice in the Lord. And matter of fact, Christ points to the fact that the first and greatest commandment is that we love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength. Essentially loving and finding our joy in him. That's the greatest commandment. And so Paul points the Philippians to that. And in addition, he says, not only is it no trouble for me, but it's actually a safeguard for you, because you will forget. We will, or we are quick to forget. The Ephesian church started out strong. The letter to the Ephesians is clear about that. But in Revelation, it says they lost their first love. They forgot what, what first came to them, their love and affection and joy in Christ. And I think about this passage when I look at this, Paul's affection for the Philippian church, and he, he's reminding them of this truth that that's the beauty of the gospel community that God gives us. I'm reminded of Colossians 3.16, where Paul encourages the Colossians to let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to the God with gratitude in your hearts, that God would have us as a community of faith admonishing and encouraging one another, just like Paul's doing with the Philippians. In addition, Hebrews in chapter 10, it tells us to let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works, not neglecting together together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other and all the more as the day is approaching. Throughout scripture, as Paul reminds us, as the teacher in Hebrews reminds us, that we should be encouraging one another like Paul is encouraging the Philippians. One of God's great gifts to us in the church is the community of faith that he has given us. It's why we at King's Cross hold up community as a core value. It's why God's people coming together to encourage one another, serve one another, admonish one another, and remind one another of his truth is so important. 
This passage at first glance, though, while he's reminding them of this truth, seems to take a hard turn. Uh, As a matter of fact, there's a contingency of of, uh, scholars who would say that this passage seems out of place. Paul has been talking about a lot of things, and all of a sudden he makes a hard shift because 3-1, verse 3-1, seems to have something jammed into it right before we get to 4-4. That whole section right there, that's a long passage. There's a few observations that might support this view. First, verses 3-1 and 4-4 seem to really flow well together. He says, in addition, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write to you again about this is no trouble for me and a safeguard for you. Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Seems to fit. The previous passage, another thing they point to is that the previous passage appears to be a travel plan, which Paul often has right before he's wrapping up a letter. In addition to that, he also, this uh, first verse is sometimes translated as finally. Finally, something like, I'm coming to the end. Matter of fact, in this passage, uh, a lot of pastors like to refer to this and make a point of saying that Paul's kind of like a preacher who never quite comes to the finish. It's like, finally, but he's only halfway through it. Okay. So uh, there are answers to those objections. There are answers to that. I I would hold that this passage fits. Uh, The first is the fact that it seems like a clumsy addition, the fact that it seems kind of out of place, would actually lend itself more to that it does belong there. Why would an editor do something that would make it more awkward to read? Secondly, the previous passage isn't really a travel itinerary. If you heard the message from last week, it's really Paul pointing to uh, Timothy and to Epaphroditus as brothers that are examples for us to look at and holding them up as important to be honored. Finally, also in this passage is really only one of the translations. And so if you have a CSB version, you'll see that they actually translate this as in addition. Okay? So finally, coming to an end, one last thing, but also another thing I want to talk about, in addition, one more additional thing is another way of translating this. And if you look at this, it would kind of be a mashup there with verse 8, because he says finally there, and then verse 840, he says finally again, and that doesn't make sense either. The last thing about this is, and I'm not going to say finally because I'm not at the end yet. Uh, The last thing about this is that the content does fit. It does fit. It's not out of place. If you read it uh, in, in an awkward way, it might seem that way. But Paul has been talking about unity, humility, obedience. He has centered all of our humility and obedience on the person and work of Christ. As our example in our Lord, he's pointed the Philippians to Timothy and Epaphroditus and the obedient servants. And now he wants to reinforce all of this with what's of first importance. And he's doing that because he knows it's a safeguard for them and he knows there's a threat to that foundation. There's a threat because there are false teachers that have been in, uh, penetrating and getting into other churches. There's, there's actually a contingency of false teachers called Judaizers that are going around and they're teaching that new Gentile converts needed to practice Jewish law. They would try, especially, as you've heard much this morning, especially the rites of circumcision, okay? The physical, outward, visible evidence that you were God's people in the Old Testament. Jewish converts, they're likely Jewish converts to Christianity. They're, they're either Jewish converts to Christianity or they're likely Gentiles who have been convinced of this. And the reason I say that is because uh, practicing Jews weren't of the habit of going around and trying to get other people circumcised. So, so they, were, they were following Christianity. They're, they're saying, hey, we also have the Jewish law. We should put that into this. We need to make sure that you're following all of what God's commanded. And they're adding on top of what God has ordained here in faith through, in Christ, that we would be saved by faith, by grace through faith. And they're adding on top of it more works. Peter's actually called out by Paul in Galatians. He was actually not eating with the Gentiles when the Judaizers were around. He was hanging out with the Gentile believers, and he was, he was eating with them and spending time with them. And then Paul said whenever those Judaizers came around, he was kind of acting like the cool kid that wouldn't go to their table because they weren't circumcised, but because they weren't following Jewish law. And Acts 15 actually records the council addressing this issue and talking about what is the final result that the apostles are teaching. Do we need to abide by the law? Do we not? 
And the one time we actually get the word Judaizer from, the place we get it from, is where Paul rebukes Peter in Galatians. And he says to him this, When I saw that they were deviating from the truth of the gospel, I told Cephas, or Peter, in front of everyone, If you who are a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel Gentiles to live like Jews? That last phrase, live like Jews, is actually to Judaize or to be Judaizing them. And that's where they get, we get that term from. There's nothing official. They didn't have like a name. It wasn't a gang. They weren't like, we're the Judaizers. That's just where we get it from. So Paul's, likely they haven't penetrated into the Philippian church. They haven't. Likely because this is a warning. It's a heads up. It's a watch out for this. He says, watch out three times. And the rebuke that he gives for the churches that have believed the Judaizers is much harsher. So in Corinthians and Galatians, he goes at him. He calls them foolish Galatians. I'm not going to want to be at Galatia hearing from Paul. He's not happy with how they're reacting. So now we know that it fits in place. He's providing a warning. He's loving the church of Philippi. And he goes on to the warning in verse 2. And he starts this way. Watch out for the dogs. Watch out for the evil workers. Watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. Okay, that's pretty aggressive. I hope it doesn't lose the aggression because he's getting pretty aggressive here. He's calling them dogs. Not a name that I like to have be called. Even today in this culture, my wife loves our dog. If she called me a dog, wouldn't feel great. Okay, that's, not, that's not a compliment. Uh, he also goes after evil workers and those who mutilate the flesh. Now, these have really important aspects for why he's trying to point this out. He's going at these teachers because he's trying to call out that this is evil stuff, and you cannot be absorbed into this. You cannot believe this. First off, as a dog, by the way, we're not talking about like friendly housebroken dogs, all right? In, in Middle East, in, in, in the East at this time, ancient Eastern world, and even uh, around the world in other third world countries, I've been to Haiti. Dogs are not something you go pet, right? They're nasty. They, they are walking around in the morning. They're looking for food and scavenging. They're going to places they're not invited just to find scraps. And, they, they, and they're not friendly if you, if you try to, that was told vehemently, do not pet the dog. It's not a house, but no worry, I won't. And that's what Paul's talking about. These guys are dogs. And the Jewish people actually refer to Gentiles as dogs from a religious standpoint, outsiders from the, Christ, from, from the faith, the Jewish faith. Matter of fact, Jesus refers to a woman who comes up to him who's a Gentile as a dog and says, why would I teach a dog? Now, Jesus isn't throwing insults around. He's doing it in a religious term, and she doesn't take it personally. She understands and responds to him accordingly. So we know that it's also something the Gentiles would have been called. So now these Jewish people roaming around, scavenging, looking for Gentile believers, they're bringing Jewish law requirements, trying to add on to salvation, trying to add extra requirements, thinking they're more faithful to God. And Paul's saying, no, no, you're the one outside God's people. Secondly, he calls them evil workers. They're preaching good works on top of grace. They think that by doing these extra good works, they are going to be more pleasing to God who's commanded them. But Paul wants us to know that self-justification is evil before God. And finally, he calls them those who mutilate the flesh, trying to convince new Gentile believers to be circumcised physically, outwardly. Now, Paul wasn't opposed to that as a tool for the gospel. He actually had Timothy, a Greek, physically circumcised so that it wouldn't be a roadblock for the gospel. But what was important is that the outward expression was only symbolic and only for the sake of the gospel to not be hindered. It wasn't any value at all for their salvation. And the Judaizers were trying to pretend that it was, that you needed to have that. And what Paul's pointing out is that their performance of that ritual was no different than a pagan who mutilates himself, if you think it has any value for your soul. It was just an outward expression of God's people. And for them, it's a vain ceremony that they were putting too much hope in. So he's warned them about these false teachers, and then he goes into why we need to watch out for them by outlining the marks of true faith. Verse 3, for we, being believers, are the circumcision, the ones who worship by the Spirit of God, 
boast in Christ Jesus and do not put confidence in the flesh. First, we worship by the Spirit of God. This is that we're not marked by our outward appearance and performance, but rather that God in his spirit resides in us. He's changing us inwardly, which shows outwardly. This is what Jesus tells the woman at the well. If you're familiar with this Samaritan woman, the story in which Jesus is at the well, she asks him about what hill we're supposed to worship on. And his response in chapter 4 of John is, An hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. It's not a spiritual, spirit-based worship in the sense that it's hidden in secret, but rather that the transformation and the devotion is inside our heart, not by what we do outwardly. Ours is, as Paul says, a circumcision of the heart. We are the circumcision. The Spirit of God dwells in us, bearing witness to our spirit. While the Old Testament circumcision was outward and physical evidence, now God has marked his people by placing his spirit in us. And in that way, the spirit bears fruit in our lives and shows outwardly, setting us apart as his people. Finally, he says, we're the ones, or second, he says, we're the ones who boast in Christ Jesus. We boast in Christ. We don't go after these works of the flesh. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says that you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourself. It's a gift, not of works, lest you boast. That's what he gets to. He says, you you say by your works, then you're boasting in yourself. We don't do that. We boast in Christ. Our boast is what Christ has done, not in our own good works. We don't do good works to earn God's love. Rather, we glorify God in our God good works because he has already shown us his love in Christ. And we can boast in that. Paul tells us as much in Romans 5. God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Listen, my kids don't have to earn my love. It would actually be a scathing indictment if they believed they had to. God demonstrates his love for us while we were sinners, while we were separated, while we were his enemies, while we were outside of the family. Yet at that point, Christ died for us. So we boast in Christ Jesus and his works for us. Otherwise, we would just be putting confidence in our own flesh, in our own works. And that's Paul's final point. We don't put confidence in the flesh. We start following by faith. We don't continue on to works. That is exactly what Paul told the Galatians, who were were believing this lie, that they were attempting to follow after what the Judaizers taught, And that's the point in which Paul says, you foolish Galatians. He says in Galatians chapter 3, who has cast a spell on you? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? I only want to learn this from you. He's like, tell me this. Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Was Was it by works or was it by your faith and your trust in Christ? Are you so foolish? After beginning by the Spirit, are you now finishing by the flesh? Paul says we were not brought into the family of grace. We were not brought into the family of God by works. It was by grace. Why then now do we think we need to earn our place there? So he he goes from this set of marks of faith, and he illustrates this for them in boasting in his own accomplishments. He says, listen, if you think that somehow your confidence in the flesh, somehow your works, if somehow things about you outwardly will achieve God's grace and love and kindness, let me just tell you, I've got more. You got nothing on me. If these Judaizers think they're more Jewish than I am, let's talk about it. That's what he says. Look at verse 4. Although I have reason for confidence in the flesh... And he goes to read and list this. He says, if anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, regarding the law, a Pharisee, regarding zeal, persecuting the church, regarding righteousness that is in the law, blameless. I have got it covered, guys. And I'm telling you, that's not it. 
That's what he's doing. He, he gives this exact kind of list to the Corinthian church. He goes in on these credentials, but he does it there because he is being questioned. His apostolic call, his credentials as an as apostle are being questioned. So he feels like he has to justify himself. And if you read that passage, he actually says, look what you made me do. I got to like boast on myself. I hate this. He feels uncomfortable. He's like, guys, what's wrong? But here he's encouraging the Philippians, if you at all are tempted to believe that in some way you can, by good works and by becoming more Jewish, Judaizing, living like a Jew, can earn God's love and be more faithful, listen, I got it covered and that's not it. He talks about two categories. He says first, privileges, and then second, he talks about his performance. Privileges he talked about, think about for yourself, by birth, by status, things you can't help. I, I, I had no control over where I was born. If you did, I don't, I, I don't know how. I, I couldn't control that. Okay? I, I, was, I was born in a hospital in Richmond, Virginia, and I didn't have a choice. They didn't ask. Didn't put up. I was like, hey, where are we? No, didn't work. Wrong turn. Didn't happen. Not this doctor, no. God, I don't want this family. I don't want to go to this church. I'd rather go to that family. They have a cool house. You know, whatever. I didn't have any of that bit. And Paul's talking about things he had no control over. First, he said, if you think circumcision does it, I'm an, literally, it says, I'm an eighth dayer. That's the phrase. In the Old Testament, the, the newborn babies, males, were, were circumcised on the eighth day. He said, I am an OG circumcision. As we said, from the beginning, my parents did it right. The ceremony was eighth day. But I don't have any confidence in that ritual. I mean, maybe your parents had you dedicated as a baby. That doesn't make you right before God. Then Paul goes on to say, I was of the nation of Israel. You think that becoming Jewish gets you saved. You think that becoming Jewish makes God more happy. Well, I was natural born. I wasn't a convert. I was of the nation of Israel. But he says, I don't have confidence in my identity, in my nationality. That doesn't earn God's favor. Paul was born into the right family. Paul had the right ceremony done. Your family, your nationality doesn't earn God's favor. It doesn't disappoint him. It doesn't hold weight. Paul says it doesn't matter. Third, he says, of the tribe of Benjamin. In case you're wondering, the tribe of Benjamin, he calls that out because that's where Jerusalem, like when they were given plots of land, Benjamin had Jerusalem, the capital city, big time, the temple. The king came from Benjamin originally. Benjamin remained faithful when other tribes fell away. Benjamin was the cream of the crop when it came to tribes, if you're, if you're judging. I'm just saying. If there's a ranking system, they're the right ones. And Paul says, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. But I couldn't help that I was born there. My rank, my title, my identity, none of, that thing, none of those things matter. And then he says, I was born and raised a Hebrew, a Hebrew of Hebrews. I wasn't Hellenized. My parents taught me to speak Hebrew. But the thing Paul is trying to hammer home is there's no confidence we should place in bloodline, in race, in nationality, in background, in where you're born and how you're raised. None of those things matter before the throne of grace. You know, my parents enrolled me in a Christian school growing up. I appreciate that. She, my mom's here. That doesn't, that doesn't matter when it comes to the very end, before whether or not God approves of me. Homeschooling, if you're homeschooled, good for you. That doesn't make you any more holy. Paul is trying to point out that he had all the best of natural opportunities. And now he goes on to say, not only did I have all the privileges, but now... I did well with what I was given. He talks about his performance. 
Anybody like to get good grades and be the best at what they do? Like you're performance driven? I'm a firstborn. That's like a big deal for me. I'm honest about that. Paul lists his premier personal achievements. He says this, not only was I born the right place of the right tribe, he says, but also regarding the law, I was a Pharisee. Regarding zeal, persecuted the church. Regarding the righteousness that's in the law, I was blameless. Pharisees were the ones who knew the law and they lived by it. Okay, Jewish men would have been taught the Torah. Pharisees were selected because they did well at it and they could teach it to others. And so he memorized the Torah, he memorized the Old Testament, the law, and he knew all those things and did all those things right. He was trained by the best, and he excelled at it. But he says, I have no confidence in those achievements. Secondly, he was zealous. He actually was so zealous for God's law, he killed the opposition. Anybody there? Hope not. That was a mark of his zealotry, that he would go after the lives of the people who would oppose God. He said, I was zealous. All right, look, as a, young, uh, as a young guy, I was a youth leader. I was passionate about the youth I was. Uh, there's a, uh, I, in contrast, though, there's a man by Martin Lloyd-Jones. He's a pastor who was a very smart guy, very brilliant, taught uh, with passion, though. So it wasn't just like reading from, hearing from a lecture. He had passion. He's actually referred to as logic on fire. If you ever listen to his sermons, it's called, he's known as having logic on fire. As a youth leader, I was ignorance on fire. Okay, I had all the zeal about what God was going to do and how great it was going to be, and I did no idea what I was doing. No idea. Zealotry, being a zealot, being zeal, having enthusiasm isn't the key. And finally, he says, keeping the law, I was blameless. Now, he doesn't believe for a second he was actually just completely perfect. But this is really a summary statement of everything that comes before that. He is pointing to the fact that by the law standards, by everyone looking at me, I had done it all just right. But Paul's saying we don't have confidence in others' approval. The confidence is not in any of these things. See, circumcision was intended as an outward symbol of the heart that's after God. And the issue with being confident in the outward symbol, the issue here is being confident in that outward symbol. And Paul's saying all those outward things have no value. Because if you have confidence in those, regardless of where the draw of your heart is, you have the wrong priorities. We fall into the same error when we have confidence in things like coming from a church family or maybe listening to the right Christian music growing up. Yeah, I went to the bonfires, you know, where we burned like the rap albums that we didn't want to listen to or we shouldn't listen to. I mean, is that just me? I'm, I'm sorry, I'm from the fundamental background there. Or being accepted by the church crowd. You know, that, that they approved of your behavior, so you must be good, right? See, when all that is enough, when all that is enough, regardless of where your heart is, then, then you have confidence in the wrong place. The heart matters to God. The Lord said, these people approach me with their speeches to honor me with their lip service, yet their hearts are far from me, and human rules direct their worship of me. He's not happy with that. In Micah 6, 8, 6, 6 through 8, he, he says of his people, they ask, what should I bring before the Lord when I come to bow before God on high? Should I come before him with burnt offerings, with year-old calves? Would the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with 10,000 streams of oil? Should I give my firstborn for my transgression, the offspring of my body for my own sin? He's asking, the, the people are asking, what great sacrifice can I give that God would be satisfied with? What is it ultimately that I need to do outwardly? In, Paul, in, in Micah, God responds, mankind, he has told each of you what is good and what the Lord requires to act justly, to love faithfulness, and to walk humbly with your God. He just wants us, our heart. It's an error to assume that Judaism was a religion of works. Don't hear that. God would not have led his people that way. 
But the fact is that Jewish law was to set apart God's people as visibly unique and was never meant to be something that brought them to salvation. And when Jesus showed up in, in the Gospels, we see that some of God's people had already fallen into that error. They had already been putting more confidence in the law than in God. They cared more about how they looked on the outside than how their heart was on the inside. Paul, Jesus called Pharisees and scribes whitewashed tombs. They look pretty, they're clean, they got the nice outward look appearance. It's been freshly painted, but inside is dead men's bones. Ultimately, confidence in the flesh can only lead to one of two things. Either it's going to lead to pride or despair. And that's exactly what we saw in the Gospels. That the Pharisees were proud in who they were. They were proud in what they accomplished. And they were proud of how people looked at them. But then there were the sinners. I.e. all of us. But in Jewish culture, they were outside the temple. The prostitutes, the tax collectors. And what Jesus was constantly accused of was that he was friends of sinners, constantly eating with them. Jesus and me have been buddies. We eat a lot. Have a meal with Jesus. And so you either find yourself with pride or like those sinners in despair because they can't live up to the law and they just gave up. You can't imagine that God could possibly love you because you can't perform, because you weren't born to the right family, because you weren't raised the right, right way. You're not following the right rituals. You can't keep up with them. But instead, Jesus says in Luke 5, 30 through 32, the Pharisees and their scribes were complaining to his disciples, and this is what the Pharisees were saying of him. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus replied to them, it is not that those who are healthy who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So those who are proud, those who think they're righteous before the law, I'm not here for you. But those who recognize their need, there's a way. Maybe your background isn't religious at all. Paul's talking to you too. You can work as hard as you can to excel at all the world has to offer and all the world asks of you. Being the best human you can be isn't what God has, is calling you to. You cannot earn the love that God has already shown us in Christ. It doesn't matter where you're born or to who. It doesn't matter how well you perform or how much or how little you achieve. It doesn't matter what other people think of you. For God so loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. What matters is your heart and whether you know Christ as your Lord. Paul is illustrating that if anyone could be saved through good works, he's got it. But even his works aren't enough. And you and I, I, I'm going to talk for me, don't compare to him. It's futile. It echoes of the teacher in Ecclesiastes that absolute futility, says the teacher, absolute futility, everything is futile. What does a person gain for all his efforts that he labors at under the sun? The teacher saw that all the things you could ever achieve, what does it benefit you? And Paul reminds us there's a better way. Paul takes everything the world said was a gain and exchanges it for Christ. Look at verse 7. But everything that was a gain to me, I've considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung so that I may gain Christ. Hey guys, our performance, our, our privileges, none of those things are the issue. It's where we place our value. It's where we put our confidence. See, before Christ, Paul was doing all the right things by the law. Everything his teachers in the world told him to pursue. We can do all those things. But Paul said that all those things had no power when it came to saving. They were all zero gain. Privileges and performance aren't your savior. They aren't Christ. 
they aren't going to earn God's grace. They won't earn God's approval. Privilege and performance will only carry you away. That's why Paul warns them against it. Freedom, rather, all those things we have, they're not evil. But as we put our confidence in Christ, we have freedom to live in them, putting our confidence ultimately in him. So guess what? I don't want you to cast away all the good works you have. I don't want you to cast away all the good things you do. Like if you have a great title, great rank, great position, if you live in a place in this country where you have got opportunity and privilege, don't think, I'm saying for a second, get rid of all that so you can now follow Jesus. Okay? Instead, Paul takes our heart and turns it upside down and says, put all your confidence in Christ and now live out as a steward of all that he's given you. And so now we can look at Paul and say, he does exactly that. He was a Roman citizen. He used that. He took advantage of that. Paul was highly trained. He knew the law. He knew the scripture. Do you think that didn't benefit him when he came to Christ? In the Old Testament, Moses, even though when God called Moses into his service, he said, I'm feeble, I can't speak. He was trained in Pharaoh's courts, which at that time was good training. He lived for 40 years with Pharaoh, taught by all the best teachers. I mean, we know historically, medical advancements, all the things that they knew. And he learned all that. And then God took him into the desert for 40 years to teach him humility. That's when he used Moses. And everything that he had learned, all that he was, was a benefit. But he stewarded it to honor the Lord. See, now we have freedom if we understand where value is really placed to use those gifts that we have for the gospel. Because we, this echoes very much so of someone who would flip those priorities when Jesus says, what would it benefit someone if he gains the whole world yet loses his life? Instead, we gain Christ and we live. The greatest gain is knowing Christ, to gain Christ. And that's why Paul now works through this and goes in ever-increasing uh, ever increasing negativity towards his previous gains. He says, I've considered them to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I consider everything to be a loss because of Christ. He says, all those Jewish things, a loss. More than that, everything is a loss. Compared to what? The surpassing value of knowing Christ. The surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things. We know that Paul suffered for Christ, that he was tortured, that he was stoned, that he was shipwrecked, that he was bitten by snakes, that he got all kinds of loss, and he did it all for Christ. And he says, I suffered all those things and consider them as dung. He's doubling down. But he's not only saying that it's a loss. By the way, you know what? On your balance sheet, oh, that's a loss. Oops. He's saying it's waste. It's not just a loss. It's garbage. You don't keep dung in the house. You know, if my kids bring in the doggy bags from the walk and they put them in the kitchen, on the kitchen table, I'd be like, oh, that's a loss. No, no, no. It's nasty. Oh. You throw it out. It's garbage. And why is it garbage? I would consider it all as waste so that I may gain Christ. That's what the greatest value is. And Paul goes on to say, how is it that we gain Christ? Verse 9, and be found in him, not having a righteousness that is my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. Paul knew righteousness from the law wasn't enough. It didn't bring life. Paul's only hope, our only hope, is that we're found in Christ that our trust is in him, and that our righteousness is not our own. He says righteousness from the law before God, it's waste. It does me no good. Christ's righteousness is only hope I have. And we need to know that this righteousness is the only hope we have. We only need Christ's righteousness. John 14, 6, when he told the disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. That's the only way. Other ways don't handle your guilt. Other ways heap more rules and responsibilities on you. Other ways 
You may have heard this. There are many ways to God. That is so ambiguous. And God is so much more gracious than that. He's taken Christ and said, no, 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 this is the way. Look to Christ. He's the way. Martin Luther struggled under this exact weight when he was regularly and over and over repeatedly confessing his sin as a monk. My man, my man was always going to the confessionals. They actually told him, the priest told him, stop. Like, this is too much. He'd be like, come into the confessional and say, he was a lawyer by training, so like he was very legalistic. You know what I'm saying? And he would come in and he'd say, this morning I confess that I, I, uh, I coveted my brother's breakfast. Uh, it looked good and I wanted it. <laughs> Forgive me, Lord. He's not wrong. I mean, there's, there's underlying. He recognized the issue of his heart. But it wasn't until he saw in Romans that the righteous live by faith. It wasn't until he saw in Romans that we're no longer under condemnation for those who are in Christ. So first and foremost, we need to be in Christ. We are, sanct- we are justified before God by our faith in Christ. Secondly, in verse 10, he says, uh, we're conformed to his death. That's how we know Christ. My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. Paul's goal in his pursuit is to be more like Christ. That he would be conformed to his death. He uses this regularly when he talks about his own suffering, that he suffered all things for Christ. And in the Gospels, we're regularly told that we should take up our own cross and follow after Jesus. If the world rejected our Savior, our master is rejected by the world. Why would we believe it would accept, accept us? If he suffered at the hand of this world, brothers and sisters, we should expect to suffer. And Paul says that is a goal to know Christ, that we would be conformed to his death. We join with Christ in his sufferings. The world didn't accept him. Finally, he says to reach the resurrection assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. Paul wants to join him in his suffering. Paul wants to uh, conform to his death. He wants to be like him, follow in his footsteps. And, and he knows that ultimately that leads to his final glorification when he is reunited with Christ from the dead. Paul isn't doubting his salvation, by the way. It says somehow. That's not a thing. It's not like, oh, I have all my confidence in Christ, but maybe not. Instead, that language is really more like a couple things of amazement that God would even save him. Somehow I'm going to make it. But also that in some time, at some point in the future, I know not when, but in God's hands, that somehow I'd make it. That I would be reach the resurrection from the dead. That the God of glory might choose to save me. You know, there are some things in this world that you really have to experience to understand. Uh, I could read all the books and look at all the pictures of the Grand Canyon. But when you're standing at the rim looking out into the mild, deep ravine, it simply takes your breath away. Several years ago, Heather and I were able to visit the Grand Canyon together, and we, it was snowy, icy, we still decided to hike down a little bit. We made it. But... We really only were able to explore a fraction of the beauty and the awe-inspiring views that's held in that canyon. And that's just in this world, in created things. I could go on and on if you stand by the Niagara Falls and the power in that water. Like the song, I hope you still feel small when you stand beside the ocean. Common grace. Truth. All truth is God's truth. I hope you dance. Stop. I'll stop. It's true, though, because you have to, in experiencing those things, it's far different. And author C.S. Lewis actually argues that when we settle for so little, when we are satisfied with what the world has to offer and accept that over Christ, that we are, we are settling because we're so easily pleased. He writes this, Our desires are not too strong, but too weak. 
We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. When my wife, Heather, was a little girl, told her I'd use this illustration, she used to go everywhere with her dad, even going on trips to the dump and excited about it. Fun fact, she wanted to be a garbage truck collector when she was a kid, but I digress. Every once in a while on these trips, even on trips to the dump, she would look up at her dad and she'd say, I'm just so happy, Daddy. I'm just so happy. See, that's not really about a child who's too easily pleased. I, I really want you to see that's a gospel picture. Heather wasn't so happy about the dump. She wasn't happy about whatever other errand she might run. She was with her dad. She got to know him more and more, and she knew he loved her. Believer, the Father loves you. Our privileges and our performance don't earn his love. Nothing else compares to knowing Christ. Don't settle. Watch out for anyone who tries to convince you otherwise. Pursue Christ. Unbeliever Christ is the only way. True, abundant life is in him and nothing else satisfies. Everything else leads to death. I want you to know that because I love you. And I want you to know that Christ died for you and that God loves you. And I want you to meet him. You pray with me. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you that in your kindness and your love for us, you have sent your son. God, I pray that each one of us would find our confidence in him that we wouldn't be so easily satisfied to trust in what the world offers us, but instead we would put all of our confidence, all of our joy, everything in Christ. Be with us as we continue in worship, as we respond. Teach us through your spirit. And we ask all this in your son's name. Amen. And we're going to... Um